As the American Revolution drew to a close, Adoniram Judson was born in Massachusetts. Adoniram Judson. It's a good name. His father is a pastor. His mother is a devoted Christian. Hudson is a brilliant child. His mom teaches him to read in one week at three years old to surprise his father who was away on a business trip. Judson heads off to Brown University and he ends up forsaking the faith that his parents treasured. The main influence in his life at this time is a classmate by the name of Jacob Eames. And as Judson gets to know Jacob Eames, he's impressed by the carefree way Eames approaches life. In his view, life is meant to be enjoyed to the fullest. Death is a meaningless event. It's just an exit from this life. And God, if he exists at all, doesn't really care about the details of our lives. Judson was attracted to the life and to the message of Jacob Eames. But he didn't want to tell his parents because they would yank him out of Oxford. And so he waits till he graduates. He tells his parents the truth about where he is spiritually. And then he heads off to New York City and he becomes a writer for a theater company. He falls in with a, a crowd who is ultimately unhelpful to his faith. He struggles with unhappiness and a lack of contentment with his life. And so he travels to New England to visit with his uncle and he stops along the road in a village inn and he walks in and the innkeeper apologizes that there's only one room left in the inn and it's next to a man who's gravely ill who may die in the night. Well, Judson is exhausted so he puts up his horse and he crawls into bed and he's staring at the ceiling and he's hearing footsteps in the room next door and he's hearing the low tone of voices and as he hears the gasps and groans coming from the man dying in the room next to him, he begins to wonder, what if this guy is ready to die? I wonder if he's prepared for death. Am I prepared for death? He begins to think about his own father. Dad is prepared for death. To dad, death is not an exit from this life. It is an entrance into eternal reward and glory and life. Dad would look forward to this moment. And then Judson becomes suddenly embarrassed about his insecurity and even caring about these things. He's, a, he's an independent man. He thinks on his own two feet, why is he so concerned about death? And so he goes to sleep finally and he wakes the next morning and he walks downstairs to pay his bill. And the innkeeper looks somber and so Judson asks him, how is the young man? The innkeeper responded, he's dead. And it struck Judson with such finality at that moment. And he said a few things that people say in such circumstances. And then Judson asked, what was his name? And the innkeeper responds, he's a recent graduate of Brown University. His name is Jacob Eames. And that sentence hit Judson like a ton of bricks. He can't recall the next couple hours. He just knows that his heart was in turmoil. He believed in a God who didn't care about the circumstances of our lives. He believed in a death that was meaningless. He believed in a life that was meant for pleasure and satisfaction and doing good for others. And so did Jacob Eames. And if Jacob Eames was right, at best he was experiencing nothing. At worst he was experiencing God's judgment. The careful, sovereign leadership of God in this tender moment was more than Judson could bear. 
He could not believe that death was meaningless. He could not believe that God was disinterested and disconnected from his life. And so he spurred his horse toward home to talk with his father. He wanted to be reacquainted with a view of death that would be an entrance into glory, not an exit meaninglessly from this life. Now, Judson may be a part of our history books, but I would wager that his views are represented well in this room this morning. You may be here this morning and you may deny the meaningfulness of death or the reality of life after death. You may believe with Judson and with Jacob Eames that life is mainly just an exit from this life. And if that's true, then our objective in this life is to take as much as we can, to enjoy it to the fullest, because this life is, is it. In fact, if you were asked, you would probably admit that to believe otherwise feels really foolish and and naive. But this question is also for those of you who trust Christ, who are presently trusting Christ. You may trust Christ, but you may lack a functional understanding of the resurrection. You may lack the joy and perspective that comes by being reminded that we will rise again if we belong to Christ, that this life is not all there is, that the treasures of this world are not meant to be grabbed, but to be enjoyed for God's glory. Or you may be discouraged by the amount of pain and hardship in this world. And if that's you, you need to hear this morning that your sin and your suffering don't define you at all. It's Christ's resurrection that defines your life if you belong to him. The main idea this morning is that Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death for all those who believe, all those who belong to him, all those who trust him for life. Now, Paul is writing this letter of Corinthians to Christians who live in the city of Corinth, and he's writing about 53 A.D. Corinth is a thriving cosmopolitan city, and about three years before he writes, Paul has spent 18 months preaching the gospel and trying to start a church in the city of Corinth. Now, chapter 15 that we're dealing with these four weeks is all about the resurrection of Jesus and us. And in verses 12 through 28 that we're dealing with this morning, Paul confronts the Corinthians for a logical inconsistency, for their inconsistent thinking. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the Corinthians seem to agree with Paul about the proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. They agree with Paul on that. But some false teaching has crept into the body of believers in Corinth, and some of them have begun to believe that they will not rise, that Christ rose, but they will not. And Paul wants them to know that it's logically inconsistent. You can't separate these two. If Christ rose, then you will rise. And if you won't rise then Christ didn't rise. And that's where Paul spends these verses. In the first place, he argues that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and then he says five things. And then in the second part of the passage, he'll argue that since Jesus did rise from the dead, here are three implications. And so we're going to follow that pattern this morning. In verses 12 through 19, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
than these five things. First, our preaching and your faith are in vain, useless, empty, purposeless. Look at verses 13 through 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what in the world are we doing here? If Jesus is still dead, then preaching is a waste of breath and energy and worship. A still dead Jesus erodes all the horsepower from our message. And it's not just our preaching. If Jesus is dead, then your faith is in vain. It's useless and it's empty if he's still in the tomb. What exactly are you believing in? What has Jesus accomplished exactly if he's still in the grave? Well, the answer, of course, is nothing. There's no salvation. There's no payment for sins. There's no power to fight sin. There's no power to obey Christ. If Jesus is still dead, then Satan wins. Secondly, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we misrepresent God. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting or bearing false witness to God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So we are false witnesses and we are liars because the resurrection is kind of important to God's redemptive plan for the world. God's, the resurrection of Jesus is God's proof that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. And so we're liars if we claim that there is a resurrection from the dead, if we, if we claim that there is not a resurrection from the dead. The whole redemptive work of God hangs on Easter Sunday. The tomb must be empty. And third, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're still in our sins. Look at verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. There's his point again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. He repeats his point and then he drives the nail a little bit deeper. And this one stings. If Jesus is dead, then his sacrifice was not effective or sufficient. The resurrection is public proof that God has accepted the payment of Jesus for our sins. That God is satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. And so over in Romans chapter 4, Paul writes that he, Christ, was delivered up, that is, delivered up to death for our trespasses, for our penalty, and raised for our justification. Raised so we might be declared righteous. He died for our sins. He rose so that we might be declared righteous. So when Jesus utters from the cross, it is finished, He's saying that his work has been complete, that he's paid the penalty for our sin. It is finished. I've fulfilled scripture. I've done what God has called me to do. It's finished. And he gives up his spirit. Or when the temple, when the, when the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, the veil that, that divided God's people from God's presence, when that veil ripped in two, God was saying the sacrifice of Jesus is enough. That's what the resurrection does. It's public proof that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. And so if Jesus isn't alive, then God didn't accept his payment for our sin. 
And if God didn't accept Jesus' payment for our sin, then the judgment for our sin still falls on us. And if the judgment for our sin still falls on us, then there is no mercy, there is no grace, there is no way out of the coffin. Just the just payment for our rebellion poured out on us instead of him. And then if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, number four, we'll perish forever. Look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there is no hope for us after death. Judson in that inn in Connecticut peered over the cliff of death and he shuddered at the thought. There's nothing. It's an exit, not an entrance if Christ is not raised. It's a horizon of deep, dark nothingness. There's no hope. The lucky among us grow old, but then experience the agony of aging. Our bodies fail. Our minds falter. Pain increases. Relationships thin. And then we die. And that's the end. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. Do you see what a distressing, hopeless, terrifying crescendo that would be to a life well lived? It's no wonder that we try so desperately to avoid death. But finally, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then number five, we should be pitied. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you're a Christian and you're denying the resurrection, then you are the most miserable person on earth, Paul says. If you deny that Jesus rose and you deny that we will rise with him, then you are the most pitiful people on the face of the earth. Why? Because all the cross-carrying and all the sacrifices and all the financial generosity and all the time invested, all the relationships risked for evangelism, all the dying for the sake of Jesus, all the cross-taking up to follow him, all the faithful obedience, all the moral stands in the culture, all the prayer, all the persecution, all the opposition— It's for nothing if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. What are we doing in the world if Jesus is not alive? And if we've lost a functional understanding of the resurrection, an operative understanding of the resurrection that grabs a hold of our hearts and minds and instructs us, then we will be miserable. We will look for everything in this life and we will treat it as if it was the end goal, rather than the means and the prelude. Now, God was on to Judson's tail. He was after him. And Judson's heart began to melt for the God who transformed death into life. And Judson therefore committed his entire life to the spread of this good news, to the spread of this gospel. And in a time in history when very few missionaries were being sent out, Judson, his courageous wife Anne, and five or six others got on a ship and went to, went to the east. Judson, his wife Anne, ended up in the country of Burma. And they were on the cover of the Boston Globe when they left. That's how exceptional this was. 
Well, after 19 years of impossibly difficult circumstances, the Burmese people began to respond to the gospel. This is after 19 years of learning their language and creating a dictionary and adopting cultural customs and and writing a Bible in their language and suffering immensely to bring them this message. After 19 years, he begins to see some fruit. And he writes this, Some Burmese have traveled two or three months and have said things like this to me. Sir, we hear that there's an eternal hell. We're afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Or, sir, we have seen a writing that tells of an eternal God and we want to know the truth before we die. Judson's message is nothing without resurrection hope. This becomes the basis not only for his suffering. This message has affected him. It's transformed him. And so he's willing to wait 19 years for signs of life. And he's willing to stake it all so that these Burmese people can know the same hope that he knows. And what is he bringing them? The message that death is but an entrance. It can be but an entrance into eternal life and glory. Here's Jesus to the religious leaders in John 5. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, and if we read Jesus in context, doing good is believing in him, who he is. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, again in context, Jesus means those who have rejected him. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see what Jesus is saying? There's a sense in which none of us are headed for an exit. It's not really true that life is an exit for some of us. It feels that way, but it's not in reality. Jesus says, it's going to be an entrance. There will be a resurrection. For those who believe in me, it will be a resurrection to life and reward and and satisfaction in my presence. But to those who reject me, it will be a resurrection to separation and judgment. And I would understand this morning if that causes you to bristle. If you're feeling something like, who is God exactly to make moral demands of me? Who is God to to threaten me in this way? But are you angry when a wave takes you at the ocean and just slams you upon the beach or a riptide drags you down shore. I don't mean to say that God is impersonal like a wave, that he's just acting randomly. I mean to say that God is able to figuratively hold the ocean in the palms of his hands. And there's a might to God and a glory to God that I think we sometimes underestimate. God acts like an ocean acts, and and we respond to who he is. He's a God of power, and he's a God of abundant mercy and love. God created us, and in creating us, he defined the terms of the relationship between us and him. He created us for joyful fellowship with him, Father, Son, and Spirit, Fellowship, that is what brings humanity contentment and joy. 
as we experience the love of God. But our sin forced us apart and a beautifully righteous God cannot draw near to a sinful people without their sin being removed. And so, because of the great love with which God loved us, he planned and he sacrificed to restore us to himself. And so, God the Father, Son, and Spirit worked to remove sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, they invite us back into fellowship, not by demanding righteousness from us. It separates Christianity from everything else you've heard in your life. Instead, they call on us, they summon us to faith in Christ, to hope in Him alone. So that what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 might be said of us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus is not dead. And therefore our preaching and our faith are not in vain. Therefore we tell the truth about God's redemptive goals in history. Therefore we are not still in our sins. Therefore we will not perish forever. And therefore every sacrifice we make for the sake of the gospel is worth it. And this only happens because Jesus is alive, which is where Paul turns next. He moves from defense to offense in verses 20 through 28. Now, I don't think there are many farmers in the room. So first fruits is a metaphor that we need to be refreshed about. First fruits is simply a sample crop that's planted in advance and then harvested in advance. And you look at the sample crop And that's what will be the actual crop. However good this crop is, that's the nature of the crop that's coming. Now there are three impacts of Jesus' resurrection on us. Since Christ rose from the dead, three things are true. First, he has defeated sin. Look at verses 20 and 22. But in fact, Christ has has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the sin of Adam in the garden served as sort of a representation of the human race toward God. What Adam did in the garden, we all would have done if we were him. And so it's right to say that all of us are in sin because of Adam's sin. And we also choose to sin on our own, which can feel unfair. And in rushes Christ as a new representative. Look at Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ represents us in a new way. He obeys in our place. And in his death and in his resurrection, he defeats sin. Well, what does that mean that he defeats sin? 
I'm giving you a couple layers of the outline here, but I've got three ways that Christ defeats sin. Sin's penalty is defeated. Sin's penalty, the wage, the consequence is defeated. Romans 8.1, for example. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The penalty of sin absorbed in Christ. But sin's power is also defeated. The power, the strength that sin has over us is defeated. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. If you belong to Christ, if you trust Christ, sin has lost its power over you. It tries, it threatens, it flexes, but it has no ultimate power over you because of Christ. And third, one day sin's presence will be defeated. It will no longer be a part of the equation for us. 1 John 3, 2, for example, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Meaning, it's going to be even better than what it is now. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Since Christ rose from the dead, he has defeated sin. And secondly, he will raise us up. Look at verses 23 and 24. But each in his own order... Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Christ's resurrection came first. It's the sample crop. You look at Christ's resurrection and you know what's coming. A resurrection like Christ's. God is satisfied with the death of his son in our place. And that's why the empty tomb is so gospel critical. His resurrection from the dead is a promise that one day our bodies will rise from the dead too. But if that's coming in the future, then what happens to those of us who will die today or tomorrow? In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body that is dead and at home with the Lord. Or the thief on the cross in Luke 23. Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we die, our earthly bodies are buried in the ground, but our souls go immediately to be with the Lord. And then when Jesus returns at some point in the future, and he will return, the bodies of all those who belong to Christ, who have already died, will be resurrected to be with their souls. This is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
This body that you live in is not incidental. This body that you live in will be raised and reunited with your soul someday and we will be with the Lord. But listen, when you close your eyes in death, you will open them in the presence of the Lord. Which brings us to the final point. Since Christ rose from the dead, he's defeated sin. He will raise us up and then he will destroy death. Look at verses 25 and 26. For Jesus must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus will reign until all his enemies are under his feet, meaning in submission to him. They've been defeated. And the last enemy to experience Jesus' defeat is death itself. Death, our fiercest enemy. In the garden, God tells Adam to enjoy all the trees and all the fruit from all the trees. Eat up, except for the one tree. The day you eat of that tree, you will die. But in Christ's resurrection, the fierce enemy of death has lost the victory. Jesus absorbs the death penalty for our sins. He consumes all of God's righteous, just anger for our sin. And then he rose in victory over it. Our worst enemy has been completely defeated. The decomposing exhale of death has lost all its power in creation because of the resurrection. Death has been shamed and embarrassed by the unrelenting power of Christ's triumph. Now, our final two verses here, 27 and 28, are a bit confusing, mainly because Paul uses the same verb to subject six times. Subject simply means to put under. So look at verses 27 and 28, and you'll understand why the apostle Peter thought Paul was confusing. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. There's two hours of my week right here. Here's what he means. God stands above all. Jesus stands functionally, not in terms of person and equality and value, but he, he subjects himself, he puts himself under God's authority and direction. And then God takes all of creation and puts it under Christ's authority and says to him, conquer our enemies and restore our people. And so Jesus does that. And at the end of all things, he will take the kingdom, all of creation that God has given him authority over, and he will hand it back to the Father. And that's the hope of the resurrection. What's the big thing in your past that still haunts you? What's the, the sin or the source of shame that threatens and intimidates you? It's the thing you don't want anybody else in your life to really know about. Maybe you've sinned grievously against another person. Or maybe it's not in your past. Maybe it's in your present. 
You're just hiding this thing. You're stuffing it down and you feel shame over it so you try not to think about it but you can't stop. Do you see what Jesus' resurrection has done? He has defeated sin. He will finally destroy death and he will raise you to new life if you trust him. To borrow Judson's words, Jesus' resurrection transforms death from an exit to an entrance. When we stand at that threatening precipice of death, we can look with confidence at it. Because Christ rose, so shall we. Because Jesus is not in the tomb, but he's sitting, ascended at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return for us, we will rise too. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Cherrydale, he does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because God delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Oh God, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He's taken that thing that still threatens you and shames you and he's thrown it into the depths of the sea. He's defeated it. He's conquered death and he will raise you again. It does not stand between you and him anymore. When your lungs take their final breath, your soul will immediately be embraced by the Lord if you belong to him. And in that moment, you will encounter the joy of Jesus's presence the resounding and eternal worship of the church already gathered in heaven around the throne. The griefs of this world will evaporate. The sorrows of this life will disappear. The pain of your body will vanish. The sinful struggles of your heart cease. The strife of your relationships will perish and you will be left with only everlasting joy, endless worship, an eternal reward. Why? Because God has committed, for example, in Jeremiah 31, to remember our sins no more. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't forget. It's not a whoops. He will not remember. He will choose not to remember. He will leave them in the depths of the sea. He will turn his back on your sin and he will welcome you in on the merits of Christ's obedience and righteousness. He will remember our sins no more. Now, Adoniram Judson sacrificed untold things for the sake of the gospel that he loved. He buried two wives his third wife would die a few years after him. 
He buried seven of his 13 children and too many colleagues to count. He spent 18 difficult months in a Burmese prison, kept alive only by the sacrifices of his pregnant first wife, Anne. And it cost her her own life. He found out 33 years after he sailed for Burma, when he returned home for the first time, that he was a celebrity. He had no idea. There were books written about him and people loved him. He could have hung it up right there and just spent the rest of his life traveling and speaking. He could have been a wealthy man, but he could not get the Burmese people out of his heart. He longed for the church in Burma to grow. And so he returned and spent another five years strengthening the church. And by the end of 38 years, he had created a dictionary and translated the full Bible and witnessed the Holy Spirit move. So there were hundreds of Christians in Burma by the time he died. And today, about 3,700 church families in Burma can trace their roots back to his and his wife's faithfulness. Now, Judson died just after four o'clock on April 12th, 1850. He was 61 years old. He had contracted some sort of virus. And as was the custom, he got on a ship and sailed into the middle of the ocean to try to recover. The funeral was striking for what it lacked. The crew assembled on the deck. They had built him a sturdy coffin. He was away from his family. He was away from his church. There were no prayers. There was no sermon. There was no singing. The captain simply gave the order and they pushed the casket over into the ocean. And then the ship lifted anchor and sailed on. Now, if death is only a meaningless event, then Adoniram Judson was a fool. Adoniram Judson spent 38 years proclaiming the gospel, giving his life, giving his family's lives for the sake of this gospel. If Jesus isn't risen, then it was a waste of a life that was crescendoed by an obscure, forgettable death. But of course, he knew it wasn't meaningless. From the moment he heard the name Jacob Eames in that inn in Connecticut, he knew this was for real. Death was not meaningless. The Spirit was after him. The Spirit convinced him that Jesus was risen, and therefore so shall we. And therefore, there is no cost too high for the sake of the gospel. There is no cost too high so that the people of Burma might know the name of Christ and worship him. So though he died obscurely in the middle of the ocean, that was not the end for Adoniram Judson. It was a glorious entrance in, into his eternal reward. It was an entrance into the fellowship God had intended for him from the very beginning. The moment Judson's body died, his soul was embraced by an alive Jesus. He reached the golden shore for which he longed his entire life. Every tear was wiped away from his face. There was no more mourning or crying. It was a land where death would be no more. He experienced the eternal weight of glory 
far beyond anything to be compared in this life. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did, he conquered sin and death for all who belonged to him, for all who would come to him in faith. So if you've not come, come today. Don't let another day go by before you come with a simple prayer of a child and say, Christ, it's not my own merits. I'm looking to yours. And if you're a Christian, let your heart be refreshed and stirred this morning that your sin and your suffering do not define you. God is committed to remember your sins no more. He was given up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. Lord Jesus, we look to you alone. We're grateful that you are risen. And all our hope is wrapped up into that fact. And so as we stand and sing, would you strengthen our hearts according to your word and by your spirit. Amen.